0: Would you turn with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 8, As this morning we're going to begin to tackle one of the most central, if not, uh, not only physically, but central to the message of Paul's writing in this letter, and one of the great challenges, how do we live out our Christian life in a way that is genuine and impactful? If you don't mind, would you stand with me as we begin by reading the first 16 verses of this chapter? Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 1. Paul, of course, continuing the thought from chapter 7, begins with a therefore. Therefore always means whatever came before. This is the concluding uh, statement. Therefore, he says, there is now no condemnation. That literally means no longer any guilt for wrong for those who are in Christ Jesus Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do in that it was weakened by the law of sin and death, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin and sinful man in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us. Who do not live according to the sinful nature, but according to the Spirit. Those who live according to the sinful nature have their minds set on what that nature desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind of the sinful man is death, but the mind controlled by the Spirit is life and peace. The sinful mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those controlled by the sinful nature cannot please God. You, however, are controlled not by the sinful nature, but by the Spirit if the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, Your body is dead because of sin, yet your spirit is alive because of righteousness. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who lives in you. Therefore, brothers, we have an obligation, but it is not to the sinful nature to live according to it. that we are God's children. Let's begin with prayer. Father, I ask that you would take this rather profound statement that we just read and you would just help us, Lord. Um, We admit our incompetence and we ask God that you would help us to understand what you've just declared to us in simple and practical ways. That we don't need a theology that goes over our heads We need a a theology that goes into our hearts and empowers us to live changed lives. And so it's that grace that we look for, Lord. It's that help that we solicit this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Here's the challenge that faces every true, real, sincere Christian. Getting saved is simple. Living saved is not. Getting saved is simple enough, but living in a way that really declares that I am saved is really where the challenge of the daily Christian life takes hold. We might say, why is that the case? Well, in part it's because there's a barrage of conflicting demands that live on the inside of my body and my mind and my heart. Paul described them as this way. He said, there's the law of sin and death, and as opposed to that, there's the law of the spirit of life. He said, secondly, the mind that's set on my sinful nature desires one thing, but I have another mind that wants to be controlled by the Holy Spirit. I have, thirdly, desires in my members, that is, in my body. He literally says, they're at war against the desires of my mind. So in all these different ways, he talks about the the mind and and the desires that are really at conflict as if there's two sides to this whole controversy. Paul, in fact, likened it to a war when he said back in chapter 7, he said, I delight in the law of God after the inward man, that is after my spirit, but I see another law in my members, that is in my body. Warring against the law of my mind, which is my soul, and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my body. So we have this body, soul, and spirit, these three things that really compose who I am, and they are at war, at, in conflict with each other, that there's almost like an unending battle, as Peter would later say, that the sinful desires which war against your soul. Essentially, it's a war of the will. There is the desire of, on the most inner being of who I am, uh, the desire of my heart or soul to do and to be a good person, to live consistently and in a manner that God would be pleased with. That's true of every person, that even people who are evil will try to rationalize their evil into some form of goodness. That even Adolf Eichmann declared that the genocide of the Jews was really doing a good thing for humanity. And even though his thinking was twisted, it underlines this basic programming that every being has that we do not want to be portrayed or even to see ourselves as being in evil or sinful or bad people We really want to see ourselves good. Now, we can conflict this and confuse this to the point where the prophet said we come to a place where we start calling evil things good and we start calling good evil. And we see examples of that in our life and in our world today. But beyond that, never miss the point that when you talk to people, their essential desire is to be a good person and to be viewed by not only others but also by God as being a good person even though it may be more than evident that they are not, at least by God's standard. But that desire for goodness is often, too often, usurped by the appetite for the perverse and for the pernicious, fueled by a, a sinful fallen nature that lives inside of me. It's no wonder that Paul, in the end of chapter 7, cried out, O wretched man that I am, who shall rescue me from this body of death? And one of the things I pointed out as we came to the end of chapter 17 is that God is the only one who can adequately answer that question. We may ask, why is it that we are the way we are And to understand that, we need to talk a little about what I refer to as the architecture of man. How are we structured by God? And we need to talk about how God made us. Secondly, how we got broken. And thirdly, how God goes about trying to fix us. So let's begin with, first of all, talking about what God said is the truth about how He made us. You see, in Genesis 1, we're informed that God made man in his own image. That is, to look like himself. Now, not physically, as some have supposed, but rather there is this uh, resonance that I have with God that when God speaks or reveals himself, there is something about me that resonates with that, that I can have fellowship and communion with God as a consequence. So what, in fact, is the image of God? Well, the Bible describes it as a trinity, a a triunity. Um, In fact, what we find is in places like Matthew 28, 19, he tells us that we are to make disciples of all nations and to baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, the concept of the trinity is one that really exceeds the ability of the human mind to actually grasp. I mean, I can graphically display it, so that in the center we have essentially the nexus point of all these three entities being God himself in his totality, and as we read through the Old Testament and the New Testament in particular, we find that God, the Father is referred to as God and the Son is referred to as God and the Holy Spirit is referred to as God, not just in one place but in multiple places and in multiple variations. So we say that these three are one and these three are also co-equal and my mind sits back and says, well, how can that possibly be? My only response to people who ask that question is, if I can explain God, He's not a very big God. Part of the nature of God being God is He passes the ability of the human mind to comprehend. So as Moses said in uh, Deuteronomy 29, 29, he said, the secret things of the Lord our God we will never know, but those things which are revealed are for us and our children forever. So what God has revealed to us is that He lives in a triunity of being. That's why in Genesis 1, when he talks about creating man, he says, let us create man in our image. And he's not talking to angels when he's saying that, he's talking about the triunity, the triune nature of God himself, so that even later on in chapter 3 of Genesis, God is walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and it really refers to him as the word or the voice of God walking in the garden, which we believe was the pre-incarnate condition of the Son of God. The Son of God is also the Word of God, we're told in John 1. So to begin with, foundationally, if we're going to ever understand ourselves, we have to understand the One who created us for Himself. So that when God made man, He made man to be reflective of this dynamic. So that what we find in our next slide and our next slide, is that basically man is composed of three parts as well. That first of all, we have a body. And our body is that sensory uh, receiver in us. It's a taste, it's touch, it's hearing, it's seeing, it's feeling. This is the thing that really stimulates the appetites of the material part of who we are. My body is my material essence. Now, one of the mistakes that people often make is that man is just that. He's simply all material. There's no spiritual dynamic to him at all. That it's popular for some to say, well, all the things we call emotions or thinking and memory is just chemical reactions going on inside of a person's body. Or they'll even say when people have visions of God in the last moments of life, it's really just this uh, thing going on electromagnetically in their brain that makes them see and think stuff, but after they're dead, all the lights go out and there's nothing. Uh, The problem with that is that's just a guess. They don't know. In fact, one who died and came back by the name of Jesus said that's not true. But the body is this, this thing that enables us. It's the vehicle that enables us to interact with the material world around us so that we can begin to receive data to the immaterial part, which brings me, secondly, to the the other part, the second part of my life, which is immaterial. It's the soul. It's often referred to as the mind of man. It's that place where reasoning takes place, that memory is stored, that imagination takes place, emotions, uh, the conscience. All of these things are things that develop as a consequence of what passes through the gateway of my body. In other words, as you grow up, you have this experience of the world around you, and you begin to experience kindness and love. You also experience pain and hardship and difficulty. All of this formulates this thinking process that is you, and it develops in you a certain set of aptitudes. The aptitude is the ability to receive that information and to process it and give it meaning for your life. That actually permeates even to a further point, and the deepest part of we, which the Scriptures often refers to as the heart of man or the spirit of a man. This is where we really develop the driving force of our life, where the things that we have an affection for, you know, if you put it in those terms, think about it, you are attracted to the things for which you have an affection and it's interesting, even when we talk about the process, how that something can change. I mean, when I was a kid, I developed an, a, an appetite for walnuts. And, my, and I would sneak into my mother's freezer and I'd take large handfuls of walnuts and guzzle them down. On one occasion, though, not realizing it, I had gotten the flu, and I had eaten a bunch of walnuts, went out to do my paper route, and when I came home, I hurled walnuts for hours so that I could not touch or even look at another walnut for about 20 years. I mean, quite honestly, I just started eating them recently as a health recommendation. But it was, such, it was so implanted in my mind that this was an unpleasant experience that the sensory experience changed my whole internal thinking so that in my heart of hearts I had absolutely no affections for walnuts but you can extrapolate that on a lot of different areas of your life. But it helps to explain what we have affections for. And when I talk about affections, I really mean ultimately the pathways that determine the direction of our lives. Because, for example, Jesus says in Matthew 12, 34, he says, out of the abundance of the heart, that inner spirit of man, the mouth speaks. So that when we look at people's behavior, we can focus on the action without really addressing, but what lies down in the heart. So that sometimes people appear to us as being good, moral people because they live in an environment where the behavior that they want to engage in is constrained. That's one of the things we found, for example, why pornography has proliferated in our culture. I mean, it has proliferated beyond, well, I don't have to tell you, you know, it's just, it's just proliferated. How did it do that? By going secret and being able to be able to access it in our own computers or our own cell phones or whatever thing you want. People can now do it in secret and but publicly speak bad about it. Very few people want to come out and say, hey, come on over. I'm going to be logging on the Internet and watching pornography all night. You want to join with me? No, it's no we don't want to do that at least we haven't quite got to that point in time but essentially the heart we our outward actions can can disguise what we really have affection for in our hearts well see when god created man if you can go on to the next slide When God created man, he created him with some some of the same architecture that God himself was. That there was this holistic, synchristic, synchristic way of being brought together that man was not Uh, simply body, soul, and spirit, but his body was influenced by the Holy Spirit because he lived in a sinful world or sinless world that God created. His, His soul was experiencing fellowship directly with God, so his mind, his experiences, his memories were all being shaped by this living daily encounter with God, and his spirit was being nurtured in the same way so that when man lived his life before the fall, he lived it holistically. He didn't struggle with a conflict because there was no conflict. But then came the fall. Then there came sin. And suddenly the architecture of, the ma- of man changed, that suddenly the body became the dominant part of who we are. We became less soul and spirit conscious and more body conscious. And we find that the further a culture gets from God, the more body conscious the culture becomes. Is it surprising to you that everybody that we see presented us in the world has been painted and shaped by plastic and latex and whatever to look flawless and perfect depending on what the definition of perfect is. I mean, I, I, I say that beauty is kind of an elastic thing. On one hand, you have a Naomi Ka- Campbell. On the other hand, you have Kim Kardashian. And, you know, two very, very different uh, morphologies, if you will. But nonetheless, there's this idea. I, in fact, I, I know a, a guy who works in Hollywood who told me, having worked on the Kim Kardashian program, he said, they take eight hours to prepare her for every shooting. He, he said, it's all paint and plastic. He says, when she walks on the set from home, he goes, <laughs> So we live in a world that is so dedicated. I mean, think about spending eight hours of your life getting prepared to present an image of yourself that isn't who you are, and we, the rest of us buy into it and say, well, I have to go down to the Mac store and buy myself some cosmetics to make myself. And let me tell you, I can't afford it anymore. (laughs) That's how I got this beautiful. (laughs) Yeah. And I'm not trying to pick on anybody. You know, I mean, sometimes a house needs a coat of paint. I'm not putting that down. (laughs) Why? You don't believe in painting houses? I don't know. (laughs) Where are you? (laughs) <laughs> but the reality is that what happened when Adam and Eve sinned was that that sin nature became powerful inside of the body and everything that I began to take in began to be filtered through the view of sin and it began to affect my soul so that the way I began to look at things, the way I began to think about things, the way I began to exercise my appetites or attitude, aptitudes became more and more designed to feed the appetites of the flesh. My body became the dominant thing. It's the reason that Satan could say to God regarding Job. He says, you know, people will do anything as long as you bless them, but strike his body, afflict his body with disease and loss, and he'll curse you. And the amazing testimony of Job was that even though he was horribly afflicted in his body and suffered terribly... He didn't curse God. He displayed that his spirit, his inner affections for God were greater than the desire of his outward body to get its needs met. Now, when we talk about this, this, the spirit and its affections, uh, we need to understand that it expresses itself in three simple ways. The Bible describes it as faith, hope, and love. And those things are distinct parts of what's going on inside of us. Faith is what I trust in. Hope is what I'm looking forward to. And love is that which I cling to and cherish. And the real question becomes, at the very root of my being, what is it that I trust in for everything in my life? What is it that I hope for in terms of my future eternally as well as temporarily? And when it comes to this issue of the things that I love, what is it that I cherish and I cling to? What do I hang on to more than anything else? So that the way that hopefully works out is that I begin to put my faith, my trust in God, that I put my hope in his eternal future, that he has promised me more than I do the temporary residence I have here upon planet Earth. And when push comes to shove, the thing that I love the most and I cling to the most is him. Now, Paul talked a lot about the law in regard to human behavior. And he he said that essentially the heart of man had become hopelessly conflicted because in verse 21 of chapter 7 he says, when I want to do good, evil is right there with me. So there's this thing inside of me that in my heart I want to do good and yet I've discovered that there's a part of my inner being that hates the evil and yet at the same time loves it. So what God did is he gave man the law, the rules, the regulations, these are the ways you're supposed to live. And, it was, and what it did was it introduced an accusing finger into humanity. Any law really serves one regard, it's to point out where you've broken the law. And Paul, writing the Galatians, says if there's no lawbreakers, there's no reason for a law. Why do you think there are speed limits? Because of people like me. I mean, that's why these things exist, you know? That's why, why you have to say only one serving, because there are some of us who are not content until we can't walk anymore. There's just those dynamics, you know? I mean, it's the reality that we don't like limitations on what we can do. Even when we know it's not good for us, we still will indulge. And so we find this conflict within us. I, never, I know that many of you never thought of dieting as a spiritual dynamic, but it says volumes about you when you've eaten to the point where your body is more than satisfied, and yet you want to go back for more, and you know it's not in your best interest. You don't, you don't need any more calories, and yet it was so good. My lovely wife, she made French dip sandwiches last night, which I, I happen to enjoy, and she makes the best French dip sandwiches and one was plenty. And it took everything in me not to say, could I have a second? <laughs> because I knew what the answer would be. But the point was, it wasn't need. It was just lust. Well, you guys understand the conflict. You live there too. But Paul went on to explain. he says, even though we have these rules saying this is good and this is bad, he says it was powerless because it was weak in confrontating the law of sin and death that lives inside of me. It's weak. And that's why you said, why do I keep on yielding? Why do I keep on giving in? Because if it's just a matter of not doing something because you know you're not supposed to do, do it, you may not do it because somebody else is watching. But when they're not watching and there isn't anybody to hold you accountable the likelihood is that your willpower sooner or later will give in and you will yield to whatever is drawing you. Again, why in the world do we think Paul said, who's going to rescue me from this dynamic? And I would note, as I did a couple of weeks ago, that he didn't respond by saying, what should I do to change it? Because, I mean, that's what we have in our world, a world filled with how to fix what you are. Self-help books, magazines, videos. I mean, I watch all those exercise videos on TV, and I've bought a few, and I've watched them and appreciated the tone of that exercise leader's body. And then after about 30 minutes of exhaustion and I start to sweat, I decided, you know, this is a younger man's game. And I give it to my kids and they can put it on their shelf. What is that? Why can't I just will myself into doing it? Well, some of you are better than I am. I granted. You have stronger willpower. You're the one who said, well, I did it. Good for you. I have a friend of mine who has a black belt in karate. He's a linebacker in, at Mississippi State in college. He's chiseled like rock and has this kind of Charles Atlas body at the age of 68. And I asked him one time, how do you stay in such shape? He says, because I work out every day. I run five miles and I lift and I'm in the gym 5.30 in the morning. I do all that. I said, wow, why? He says, because I love to eat. LAUGHTER I said, okay, I knew there had to be sin there someplace. And I've taken him, you know, every time he's visited me he's just said, I said, where do you want to go? He says, "Uh, uh, Golden Corral or any other buffet that you have in town. (laughs) And man, can he put it away. It's unbelievable. And then he's up at 5.30 running five miles. It's an amazing dynamic, but I don't have that kind of discipline. But we find here that the law says, here's the standard, be holy as I am holy and he who sins shall die. And you and I look at that and going, you know, there's been some holy moments in my life. There's times I feel holy and there's times I feel close to God, but there's also times that I very consciously, willfully disobey God. Who is going to rescue me Free me, deliver me. And the answer he gave in chapter 7 and verse 25 was Jesus Christ our Lord. He was the one who was sent to rescue you and me, not to repair us, not to renovate us, not to remodel the old you, but to completely rescue you from the body of death. In fact, that's why Paul goes on to say in this chapter he condemns sin in the body. That the body, the, there's a reason why one day God's going to give you a new body, because this one is incurably warped. It, it can't be repaired. It, the, the, the sin nature cannot be always held down and, and brought into obedience, that you're going to find sin can even eke out of you in some of your most humble moments. And you know it's happened because you sit back and look at yourself and say, wow, I've finally become humble. And like a bird that flies away, you lost it. (laughs) Well, I finally got that discipline of reading my Bible every day, and next thing you know, you forget about it. The alarm goes over, and you slip away, and you didn't pray, you didn't read, and you had this horrible day, and you sit back and say, Oh, shoot, I broke it. Because nobody bats a thousand. Nobody bats a thousand. We all strike out in life. But God did something, and He tells us what God did. He said, God did by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. The very first thing God is, He says, there needs to be payment made. I owe a debt I cannot pay. God says, I will offer a sacrifice. I will offer the best that has ever been my own son without sin, without spot and blemish, I will offer him as the perfect payment for your sin. So that's why he begins the chapter by saying, there is no longer any guilt or shame that I should feel about being me because it has been paid in full. That's why when Jesus says on the cross, it is finished, the word finished there in the original literally means paid in full. It was what was stamped on a receipt when the debt had been paid off. So part of the the error that many of us fall into is even though the debt has been paid, we're still showing up with our pay stub and trying to pay it off. And God says, no, I've already paid it. But secondly, He says, that it wasn't just a matter of sacrifice, it was a matter of meeting the requirements of justice. And so he says he condemns sin in the flesh. The Amplified amplifies that statement by saying he subdued it, he overcame it, he deprived sin of its power over all who accept the sacrifice. So if I accept that his sacrifice is payment in full for my sin, there is an empowerment that comes into my life. And there is a distinction that takes place, is that my sin that still manifests itself is, go- is limited in its lifetime to this body. And the hope of the believer becomes the day when I shed this and I receive a new body. And he goes on and says, in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us, that is us who believe. That suddenly that debt of sin could be fully paid for once and for all. But there's more. There's not only the sacrifice and there's not only the meeting out of justice. It's not that I owed a debt and I couldn't pay, but he also paid a debt that he did not owe But the third thing is that He empowers us as well. He empowers us by the Holy Spirit. And this is what's really interesting to me as I was looking at this whole issue in the book of Romans. You see, in the first seven chapters of Romans, you know how many times reference is made to the Holy Spirit? Four times. In chapter 8, you know how many times reference is made to the Holy Spirit? Fifteen times. Fifteen times. Fifteen times. Over three times more often he comes back to the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, the Spirit in you, the Spirit of life, the Spirit of Victory. He, the Spirit, 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 Spirit. And we should basically draw a hint from that. Now, this is an important thing, I think, to emphasize because we live in a time where the church is becoming more competent in its own competence. When in fact we grow spiritually, we become more confident of our incompetence. When he says through Zechariah the prophet in chapter 4 that it is not by might and it's not by strength, but it's by my spirit, saith the Lord. A little over a week ago, I was at a, a conference in Dallas, Texas, and it was fascinating uh, talking about the millennial generation and what they're like and all this data and they had actually churches there that have full-time statistical analysts who are basically doing community services and breaking down their neighborhoods and they had some amazing things that i didn't understand i couldn't even follow Uh, but how they profile their communities and just like the politicians are doing so that they said when the politician or the canvasser comes to your door and knocks on it to talk about his candidate he already knows over 500 different data points about you personally He knows how you've voted in every past election. He knows whether you're leaning left or right or in the middle. He knows what issues you are touched by. And so as you're having this conversation, it's like, this guy's speaking my language. No, he's reading your data report. And they're saying, this is what we need to do in reaching the world. And I just went... (laughs) If that's what it takes... I'm becoming a Mormon. (laughs) Seriously, man, it's like, I can't do this. This is so, and I, I, you know, me, I try to say stuff I probably shouldn't, but I I just looked at the guy and said, you know, Mark Twain once said, there are lies, there are damned lies, and then there's statistics. (laughs) But it's the world we live in. And the entire nine hours that I was in this conference, nonstop, no breaks. Do you know how many times we prayed? Do you know how many times there was a co- reference to praying and seeking God? And I just thought, went out of there saying, Lord, the data's great and the information's helpful, and I appreciate these guys. They're smart and they're talented, they're gifted, and they're good people. They love you, but do we really think we're going to change the world? As Dave Roper put it, I've quoted this so many times, it's my favorite quote right now, that grace is God's greatness flowing through my basic incompetence for His glory. It's God's greatness flowing through my incompetence. It's not by my might. It's not by my statistics. It's not going to be by my analysis. It's going to be by His Spirit Moving, And what Paul tells us here is that what God did is not only he forgave you for your sins and removed the judgment that was upon you, making you just in his eyes, but he also empowered you with his spirit. So that when we talk about something being born again, what happens is this Holy Spirit goes past the body. It goes past the soul. It goes right to the very core of who we are. And suddenly something explodes on the inside of us and we begin to crave God. The desire of my heart has changed. Now, this is important for some of you who say, but, but I don't desire God. My first question is, have you ever truly been born again of the Spirit have you ever received him into your heart? Have you been converted or have you just been Christianized? Because you see, knowing the rules and the regulations is just being Christianized. To know what's supposed to do and what you're not supposed to do and when you do it and how you do it and learning the songs, learning the verses, all that stuff. I'm not saying there's anything at all wrong with that. But why we do it matters. When God says, I have written my law in their heart, Now, it doesn't have to be something that I necessarily memorize in my mind. But it's something that begins to live on the inside of you. And it just can't help but express itself. So that when it says, what do I put my faith in? My faith and my trust is in Jesus Christ. And, And what do I hope in? That one day I will be with Him. I don't. my hope and my prayer isn't simply that I'll get what I want on this earth, but rather one day I'll be freed and I'll be with Him. And my love, Lord, I cherish You and I cling to You because everything else is shifting sand. Everything else will leave me or be lost. Even friends and people you love and loved ones. One day, they will be taken from you through death or disease or incapacities of various kinds. And if you cherish and build your life around those things, you're just simply setting yourself up for a life of disappointment. But as even we've experienced in the last week, just seeing loved ones taken from us precipitously, this one dear lady, diagnosed, seven weeks later, she's dead. Family's devastated. And the only thing I could say to them is, that you know, if moms can cry when the kindergarten goes off to school, <laughs> we should be able to cry when our loved ones graduate to heaven. Because we realize as far as our existence here, we have lost a connection with people that are precious to us but only for a season. So Paul said, we're not like men who grieve, who have no hope. We have hope. And we cling to Him because He remains the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so as Paul talks about the empowering role of the Holy Spirit in this chapter, listen to what he says about it. He says nine different things that I could find. In verse 2, he says, the Spirit frees us from this bondage to law of sin and death. In verse 6, he says, The Spirit takes control of my mind. In verses 9 and 11 again, he says, the spirit lives, it literally indwells me, it's on the inside of me living and ruling in my heart. In verse 14, that same spirit leads me, it gives guidance and direction and wisdom and understanding and insight. In verse 15, he says, "It, it adopts me, it makes me into part of God's family so that I began to experience sonship. He says the kind of sonship where we cry, Abba, Father. In Aramaic, the word Abba is the most intimate term. We could translate it Daddy. But in ancient times, the only time a child could refer to his father as Abba is when the father came into the room and he got on his knees and he invited the children to come to him and then they could call him Abba, 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 Abba. And they still do it in Israel today. Daddy, not Mr. God. I remember a friend of mine having this conversation with Jehovah's Witnesses, and they were telling him that, you know, God's name is Jehovah, and you've got to refer to him as Jehovah, and so forth and so on. By the way, not only not biblical, but poor linguistics. Jehovah is not a word that actually exists in the Hebrew language. It is Yahweh, but nonetheless... And his response to me was brilliant. He said, You know what? You can refer to him by the name by which you know him, but I'm going to refer to him by the name which I know him. To you, he's Mr. God. To me, he's Daddy. And there's the difference you know him from afar, but I know him in my heart. I am born of his seed. That's why in verse 16, he says, the spirit itself testifies with our spirit that we are the children of God, that we have the spirit living in us, saying to us all the time, you are a child of God. Do you find yourself having that argument in your head sometimes? He says, it's telling you all the time, you are a child of God. He says in verse 23, it causes us to yearn for heaven when he says, not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groaned inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. That as God's presence becomes more powerful in our life, we find ourselves not fearing death, but yearly yearning for that moment when death will liberate us from the bondage and we will come into the fullness of who we are. I have to warn you that may affect your ambitions in the sense when winning at all cost suddenly costs too much. Because the only real winning that matters is heaven itself. Verse 26, he says the Spirit helps us in our weakness, which means he's busy in my life constantly. And then in the second part of the verse, he says, the Spirit Himself intercedes for us. The very Spirit of God living in me is praying. He says, sometimes with groanings that can't be uttered. You ever been in those moments when you're sitting here saying, God, I don't know what to pray? I don't know what to say. I don't know what I need. Please, God, he says that is the Holy Spirit taking your pain, your struggle, your conflict, translating it into the language of heaven so that it becomes the most powerful, beautiful prayer in the ears of God. So that when the the Old Testament said that the incense off the altar was a symbol of the prayers, the beautiful fragrance rising up and entering the nostrils of God, suddenly my prayers become this fragrant calling out to God that He sits there and just like when my wife wears that incredible Tom Ford uh, uh, perfume. And I just, you know, I bug her to death because I can't get my nose off her neck oh it's so beautiful I just love this smell please walk by me again that God says that's how I feel about your prayers not because you have so masterfully prayed it you know you hear some people pray and just go man they know how to talk to God wish I could be like that You know, they're, oh, heavenly Father, divine one, who from before all time and creation, blah, 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 blah. And you're up there saying, hey, God, it's Weezer here again. (laughs) You know, and you feel like God hears their prayers. He's not going to hear mine. And he says, if you've got the Spirit of God in you, it doesn't matter how guttural your groanings are. God hears those, and they are beauty to his ears. And he delights because it's the Holy Spirit praying on your behalf. Even when you just lay there and weep or groan, saying God, God, please, he hears. Is it any wonder that Paul, as we'll find next time in the end of the chapter, says, if God be for us, who can be against us? There are those who are against us. There are the demons of hell that are against us. There are those who get convicted converted and possessed, and they're his minions, and they work against you. There's all sorts of things that are against him, but as he goes on to explain, but they won't win. They can't overcome because look what we have to go on and say we are more than conquerors. Next week, we'll get into we're talking about our new power today. Next week, we'll talk about our new future. Now, does this mean, therefore, that when I come to Christ, my life is now on autopilot? Well, six times in the chapter, Paul reiterates, he says, We have an obligation, literally, it's a debt, not to live according to the sinful nature, but to according to the Spirit. The word according, there really means to grant something power and status in our life. We no, we no longer should give power and status to sin in our life what we need to do is give power and status to the spirit that is living with us and let it be the one we feel our greatest obligation to you know how that works i start asking god what do you want what do you desire what's your will should I take this job? Should I not take this job? I was so blessed by my daughter when she spent an entire year praying over whether or not to take a new position that paid several times her current position. But she simply said, I need to know that that's God's will. And I can't move until I'm sure. And I thought, reading those Bible stories did work. (laughs) But that's the whole point is get God... I want your spirit to be that leader in my life because I know that that's the only way things work out. We are obligated and indebted because, as Peter would later say in his second letter, his divine power has given us everything we need for life and for godliness. He's given you everything you need. So when you're saying, Well, I can't do this because I need this and I need that, God said, No, I. I If you need it, I give it to you. I've given you everything you need and will continue to do so. But because my sin nature is still present, I have to make a choice. It's a battle for the mind. A choice to yield to the power of the Holy Spirit and let the Spirit have its way or to yield to the appetites of my sinful nature. And every one of us win and lose on a daily basis on those battlefields. We have victories and we have defeats. But the choice really comes down to is what you're plugged into. In fact, I don't know if any of you know what this is. I discovered this years ago when I was going to Russia and found that if I wanted to make coffee in my room or hot tea, that... um, that, you know, I wouldn't be able to do it unless I had some way of making the water really hot. And somebody gave me one of these things and it's cool, you know, you stick it in the cup and then you plug it in the wall and first thing you know it heats up and the water gets hot really fast and then you can make your coffee and your tea. One of the things I discovered is if I simply put the coil in the tea but don't plug it in the wall, you know what happens to the water? The water doesn't get hot. In fact, what happens is the coil adapts to the temperature of the water. The Bible has a term for it, it's called lukewarm. See, lukewarmness is the condition that Christians come into when they allow the temperature of their spiritual life to be moderated by the culture that they're in. So suddenly the culture begins to shape the temperature of my life instead of me affecting the temperature of the culture that I'm in. How do you change that? By plugging it into the wall and letting the power of electricity flow through the coil. And heat up and suddenly because the coil is hot, the world around it becomes hot. Even the cup becomes hot. What's my point? If you want to live a a victorious Christian life, you just have to plug in. You just have to plug in. You don't have to rub sticks together and make fire. You know, you don't have to do any kind, you just plug into God. How do I plug into God? Real easy. You repent of your sins. You simply say, God, forgive me, for I am a sinner. That secondly, you receive the Spirit of Jesus into your heart. And having done that, there's really three very simple things. Read, pray, obey. Read, pray, and obey. That's all it is. Now, you may say, well, well, I have trouble reading. Well, I've never had trouble reading anything I'm interested in. And guys will say to me, I try to read the Bible. I can't, can't really follow it. And then I'll say, well, did you catch the Mariners game last night? Uh, two in a row, that killed those Yankees. I'm praying for three. And they say, oh, yeah, yeah. You know, and they start reciting all the box scores and tell you everything. And, so, so, and they have all these details, but they can't remember a single scripture. I'm telling you, friend, you know why? Because whether the Mariner's win or lose is of primary importance to you. But what God has to say to you today from His Word doesn't. And there's the difference. The Holy Spirit lives inside of you. And if He's living inside of you, He's going to be emphasizing the importance of God's Word to you. We get into arguments, well, is the Bible God's Word or is it completely inerrant and can we trust it and it hasn't it been changed and copied? You know who I find have... have those kind of conversations, people who have not really spent a lot of time reading it. You read it, you'll lose all doubt that it's God's Word. <laughs> because you know what? God starts talking to you. <laughs> From the really obscure passages, He starts talking to you to the point sometimes where you don't want to hear it anymore. Love my neighbor. I'll love my neighbor and my... Ne- you know. <laughs> But you read it, The next thing you know, you'll start praying. The next thing you know, you'll just start saying, okay, God, I'm going to take a chance. I'm going to believe you. I'm going to obey. And then comes the blessing. And you start heating up the world around you. The fruit of the Spirit, not the work of the Spirit, not the labor of my efforts, not the statistical analysis, not the strategy, but simply your life begins to radiate His life. And it touches other people and they start desiring to know the God that you know. Father, I pray that you'd help us to hear these things in our hearts, in our minds, in our lives. You have have given us so much power and how little we use it. You've made such amazing promises. You said, ask of me for the nations and I will give them to you. And Lord, we don't ask for the nations. We ask for stuff. But you said, if we ask for the nations, you'll give us the nations. Lord, I pray that we would just begin to access that power in our life and let it flow through us. We ask in Jesus' name. As we continue on for a few more minutes, uh, we invite you to partake of the elements of communion but also I would just simply want to reiterate a simple point here that if you don't know Jesus and that doesn't, you're not excluded from that question if you've just simply been sitting in the pews here for half your lifetime or all of it. If you don't know Jesus, you have to begin by saying, I repent for being a sinner and I Secondly, receive the Spirit of Jesus into my spirit that I might be born again and I might begin to experience its radiating influence in my life. And the other stuff will take care of itself. But if Jesus is living in your heart, you'll be feeling this compulsion to read His Word. You'll feel this urge to pray and talk to Him. Uh, You Nobody will have to teach you any of those things but you will probably seek out teaching that will help you understand more and more. But you'll find yourself also beginning to obey. You'll find yourself taking faith journeys. These moments when you're looking at something and you know what the Bible says and you hear God speaking to your heart and you're scared to death, but you say, you know what, God? I'm going to forgive. I'm going to love. I'm going to serve. I'm going to give. I'm going to sacrifice. I'm going to step into this arena. I'm going to make this career change. i may make this radical decision because I want to obey you. And if you're like me, I always say to him, Lord, if that isn't you and I'm confused, then hit me with a two-by-four, bring me back to my senses. But God, I want what you want. And that just happens naturally. Not because you took a course on it. It just happens. So I urge you to respond as we continue. We'll, there'll be those of us up here available here for prayer. If you need prayer, whether it's to meet Jesus or to get over a hump in your life, I encourage you to come to repent, to receive, and begin to obey him.